Blog Talk Radio. This series of interviews deals exclusively with how we, you and I, and big oil are killing our natural environment. The air we breathe, the water we need, the forests, the now dwindling wildlife. It's a crime in progress. Mitchell Tomashow spent 30 years as the chair of an environmental studies program, then was president of another college in New England where he emphasized sustainability practices. He's written books about the sustainable campus, the biosphere, ecological identity, and now his latest, To Know the World, A New Vision for Environmental Learning. He's one of the most important authors on the planet right now because he's writing about the human species and how it's destroying our planet right now. It's being called the Anthropocene Era, which means that nearly all changes that are occurring in nature right now are the result of what humans are doing. Nature is no longer changing naturally. Humankind is changing it, and not for the better. Dr. Tomashow, Mitch, welcome to our discussion. Yeah, thank you. I'm really pleased to be speaking with you. Uh, first, uh, I think you buried your lead. Uh, deep in your book, I found this quote. In the 21st century, an environmental change threatens ecosystem integrity, we desperately require ethical and moral wisdom. It's really what your, your book is about. Uh, uh, to dispel possible notions from your title, environ- environmental learning really has nothing to do with environmental education. And uh, you've expanded the definition of the Anthropocene. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't start with that because, um, I mean, there are just hundreds and hundreds of books that do. And um, I think anyone who is fam- even remotely familiar with this field understands the challenges that we face. Um, and what I try to do in this book is, is post some creative alternatives. And those creative alternatives are based on my own um, interest and experience and expertise and that is on education and learning and uh, how we how we how we learn to see the world how we how we learn to know the world so uh, there's a lot of personal stories in the book um, I try to as a teacher and as a writer my approach my strategy has always been that you discuss your experience so that you empower the experience of the people that you're working with because ultimately it's it's their own experiences that are going to lead to their insights. So what I what I try to do in the book and the way I start the book is is discussing who the book is for and why it's for them and what I hope they gain from it. And um I think that's the best way to teach and that's the best way to learn. I I agree your personalization in in the book uh, really really makes the reader comfortable right away and 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 uh we 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 get a, an association with you right away. Uh, you, you, uh, your, your interest in all of this uh, uh, seems to go way back to uh, uh, we kind of we're almost the same age, and uh, 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 in my hippiedom, I remember the whole Earth catalog very well, and yes. it was the whole Earth catalog that kind of got you going, wasn't it? 
It was. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I want to lead with actually with something else and then say a little bit about the whole Earth Catalog. Um, I have a chapter in the book early on called Memory Forever Unfolding, and I discuss the three childhood memories that have been uh, riveting for me and that always that always emerge. Um, one of them is the first time I discovered the book Harold and the Purple Crayon. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why that book mattered so much, but mainly I love the idea that uh, this, this little boy could draw his, his way out of trouble. And uh, that, that improvisational excellence, which is what I call it in the book, I think is how we have to think about the times we live in. Um, and for me, it's been a guiding principle in everything I've done in life, whether as a teacher or as a university president or as a parent, uh, as a citizen. Uh, the other was the Golden Guide to the Stars, which I, I first acquired when I went to the Hayden Planetarium as a very young boy. I was about five years old. I was reading when I was three. And I, that book really opened me to the magnitude of, of uh, existence and uh, what was out there to be discovered and explored. But another experience, um, which I want to say a little bit about right now, is I, I grew up on the south shore of Long Island when, in, a, in a suburban development that had been reclaimed from a swamp. And when I was a young boy, uh, you know, we'd play outside all the time, and a, a truck used to come, a, a Jeep-like truck spraying fog. And at the time, we thought, oh, this is amazing. You can, you can run through the fog. And in fact, they were spraying DDT. Uh, so at the first time I ran through the fog, my, my glee quickly turned to dismay. I developed a headache. I didn't do it after that. I, and I, I told this story to a group of students at New York University. I was asked to come in and give a talk. And this was 12 students in a graduate class, and they were from all over the world as well as from the United States. And every one of those students could cite a toxic experience from their childhood. So that was the point of, 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 of recalling those memories, both those that were inspirational, but also the ones that were challenging uh, and helped, helped us begin to think more deeply about the world that we were growing up in and who was making the decisions for it. So, you know, yes, yeah, so there's that. And then the whole Earth Catalog, um, which I first saw, I guess, in 1967 or 1968. I always refer to this in the various slide talks I give. The late 60s was an extraordinary time. Um, we had all these movements, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the peace movement, the environmental movement, and all the amazing music that was coming out of uh, the West Coast and Motown and then jazz and, and, and the British invasion. It was a great time to be 17, 18 years old. So, uh, it was no Internet, of course, so I would always go to the 8th Street Bookstore in Lower Manhattan. I'd go to the first car of the subway where you'd get a light show, and we'd go downtown, and I'd go through the stacks and the magazines to see what was coming out and what was exciting and new because I had a very open and curious mind. And one day I saw this whole Earth catalog, and I picked that up, and I realized that in retrospect, a lot of my life has been trying to recreate the uh, philosophy of that as a, as a teacher and as a program developer and as an educational administrator, that that was a great curriculum. Uh, so all of those things were very influential for me. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that I grew up in the late 60s when there was such a creative cultural opening that was taking place. 
I think a lot we of people really have been trying we to shut that down over the last 50 years. Yeah, we really thought we were going to change the world, didn't we? We really did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we really did. Now you call mm-hmm. yourself uh, you call yourself an analog man, and I guess I'm an analog man, and that's because of what you have added to the Anthropocene definition is uh, essentially screens. Right. Um, thank you for you know picking this this up. Uh, you know the idea of the Anthropocene is simply uh, it's it's a it's an idea that is uh, controversial in, in academia. And it was invented by some geologists who wanted to call attention to the extraordinary impact that humans are having on the biosphere. And they thought that one way to do it was to label the era of the Anthropocene to give it the, I guess, the hubris, if you will, of a geological age, that humans are that dynamic and that powerful. Um, But the way I see the Anthropocene is it's two uh, parallel trends. One is natural resource extraction and its proliferation, which is, you know, it's been going on since humans have been on the planet, but over the last several hundred years, um, especially since the Industrial Revolution, the scale of it has been extraordinary. But along with that is um, the proliferation of electronic information systems and communication systems, and they reinforce each other in a way. Um, They both speed up uh, and accelerate our relationship to the planet. Um, and and create a sense of, of the planet of, of of the whole system driving itself. They rob us of our autonomy. And what I try to do in the book and in this, I have a chapter called "Is the Anthropocene Blowing Your Mind?" I ask the reader to step back and find ways to reclaim uh, her autonomy, so that we can make the decisions for ourselves and not be catapulted down the um, the vacuum tube of uh, I'm not sure that's the right analogy. Of, of the internet, where you often start surfing and wind up at going places that you never intended, or that other people are prescribing for you. Well, you make a point of how how powerful the screens are as a huge factor right now. That they lead to uh, to myopia, and there's a there's a collective spell uh, that we're all caught in. I actually part of that reminds. Do you know about Max Headroom? I kind of was reminded of Max Headroom. I, I, I remember seeing that at some point, but I, I can't recall it that well. Yeah, but yeah. but I mean, you know, well, you, you, you say yeah. you say the Anthropocene is not just humans acting on the environment, but it's also this new internet tech, this screen co- connectedness, which the entire race uh, seems to now be trapped in. The, the 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 two the two actually go together. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's a new book. Um, I just read about it this morning by uh, an, a new scientist. I think the woman's name is Kate Crawford, where she looks at artificial intelligence and what a what a intensive natural resource extraction industry it is. Uh, I look forward to picking it up and the politics that drives a, AI. But I do I do want to make it clear that I'm not a luddite. I I, I enjoy the tech, the new technologies. Uh, they allow me to do many things. They allow me to do virtual presentations. They allow me to uh, access information in ways that are very helpful. Um, they allow me to watch my favorite sports teams. Um, there's just the, they allow me to FaceTime my kids who are in far distant places. The, the issue, though, is, that is, is one of balance, and it always has been. And, the, the, and the, it, because the technology is so uh, enticing, it also is very addictive, and it takes a great deal of... Uh, of discipline 
and um, and education to understand that. So, you know, what I su- suggest is a is a way to balance the visceral and the virtual. Um, I think I think we're imbalanced right now, and I think this ought to be taught in in K through 12 in college classrooms that. Uh, how, how is this influencing and changing the way you see the world, and what can you do about it? So it's not a matter of getting rid of it or that it's, uh, you know, it's become this incredibly autonomous uh, driving force, because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, we still have the ability to make some decisions and choices around it, but not, we're not going to be able to do that unless we recognize the traps and the conditions um, of, of using this technology. And one of the one of the, the the ways to avoid those traps or to, to escape that trap, uh, according to you, is uh, be, because the screens uh, tend to uh, dissociate us from 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 nature, from from the outdoors. And and so uh, you you mention, you know, that we need to break the spell, but by doing that. Uh, uh, some of the ways, some of the interesting ways you suggest is is one to read the day. Right. Well, this has been a theme throughout all of my work and throughout my entire career. I wrote a book in 2002 uh, called "Bringing the Biosphere Home," and it's subtitled "Learning to Perceive Global Environmental Change." And I went to a conference in the late 90s. Uh, it was a biodiversity conference. And it was filled with statured conservation biologists and um, all the, all the, it was a who's who. And it was a very difficult conference to attend because you came out of there um, feeling, well, the way that you s- stated your own, you know, mood really at the start of the show, it, you came out of there feeling, my goodness, there, there's, a, there's a sixth extinction taking place that is very dangerous and challenging and, and overwhelming. So I wanted to write a book about both that and climate change from the perspective of, you know, really the, the, the concerned citizen who wants to tap into some of these challenges. And it, it became clear to me that unless you are aware of local place-based natural history, that is, what is immediately surround you, what lives where you live, your ecological neighborhood, if you will, you're never going to understand the bigger spatial and temporal challenges. Um, why, if you don't know that, let's say, uh, where I live, uh, there's a songbird called Phoebes, which are a, fl- a flycatcher, and they pretty much come back the same time every year. In fact, they've been singing all day. Um, but if you don't know that, you won't know when the Phoebe starts coming earlier every year because of climate change. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's the local awareness of natural history is really crucial. So. I wrote a whole book about that, and which I really recommend. The book is still pertinent. It's almost 20 years old already, but um, it's just as relevant now as it was in 2002 or 2001 when it was published. Uh, but in, in this book, I take it further uh, in a lot of different ways. But um, I come up with this notion of the deliberate pause, which is how do you find moments during the course of your day when you can unhook and be mindful. It, it's no different than the meditative tradition, where you're always trying to be uh, mindful of, of your awareness at any given point in time. And I'm suggesting that you approach every day with a mindfulness about the natural world. And you, you can do this anywhere. You can do this on a city street. You can do this out in the woods. Um, but unless you get into that state of mind frequently, 
that natural world is going to pass you by, and if it passes you by, you're not going to understand the importance of saving it. Uh, also, you you, uh, you 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 want to broaden uh, the meaning of environmental quality uh, so that it includes affordable housing, access to health care, educational opportunities, uh, community rootedness. I think your four major uh, points are ecology, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, I'm, thanks you for bringing that up. Um, for many, many years, uh, people who affiliated with um, the environment in terms of the movement itself, not all but many, thought that you could just do conservation or uh, you could, you could preserve wildlife or you could deal with environmental pollution, and you didn't have to deal with these other questions. You didn't have to deal with the race issue. You didn't have to deal with the equity issue. You didn't have to deal with the democracy issue. You know, we could just solve these problems. And often, you know, the, the, the reverse was true, that people who were interested in those particular issues felt, well, I, I just want to focus on this one. The environmental issue may not be as important. But over the last couple of decades, uh, we saw the origins of what's called the environmental justice movement, which is folks who really pioneered this way of thinking and suggested that you need to deal with all these things simultaneously. You can't deal with one without the other. You can't look at environmental quality without looking at communities of color and how, for the most part, they're the ones um, who are most affected by environmental pollution. You can't look at it without thinking about the question of equity and access to wealth, whether it's housing or health care or any of these things. And, of course, what we've learned over the last, uh, you know, four years and longer is that you can't deal with any of these things without also understanding the importance of democracy and people having access to decision-making. So uh, my view is that unless the environmental field, unless environmental learning in internalizes this, it's not going to be pertinent. And if you talk with just about anybody under 30 uh, who's in this field, the profile, by the way, of the field is increasingly female. And if you talk about just about anyone under 30, they get this. They totally understand the importance of this. So I, think, I, I see that as a very hopeful sign, actually, that you have a whole new generation of, of environmental activists who completely understand the interrelationship of all these factors. I call them, I call them the tides of change. And I try, in the book, I try to link them back to the late 60s. I think this is a continuation. What we're seeing now is a continuation of all of those themes. And they're converging in a way now that makes it unavoidable that we have to deal with all of them simultaneously. And by the way, before I, before I grab a breath, uh, Thus far, I'm very impressed with what the Biden administration has done in terms of the, how they're filling EPA. Uh, and if you look at a lot of the appointments that are environmentally oriented and, and in, in other fields as well, they are filled with people who get this, who understand this. And that's, I've not yes. seen anything like this. Yes, it's, it's, it is definitely it is hopeful. But uh, go, uh, going on with what, what the, the, the point that, that you were making, uh, you, you say that inequality is directly associated with environmental issues. In your book, you, you, you mention us versus them several times in several places. It's a, a constant dynamic. I've always used the term xenophobia. 
a direct quote uh, from your book is that uh, the costs and benefits of addressing climate change are inevitably skewed around wealth and power. And I'd like to read uh, I'd like to read a, uh, a paragraph directly from your book. We are witnessing a resurgence of nationalism, tribalism, and ignorance, often transmitted as fake news and propaganda, reflecting a desire to find simple solutions to complex issues while glorifying an idealized past. This mindset threatens democracy, open societies, individual autonomy, critical and creative thinking, and the very practice of science, environmental learning, must counter these trends. Yeah, well, of course I was writing this book uh, during the, um, the dark days of the, what I describe as the hideous corruption. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen the, uh, the ugly face of xenophobia and, um, and, and nationalism. Uh, Gary Snyder, the great poet, once described nationalism as the grinning ghost of lost community, uh, which I think is a, a, a brilliant, a brilliant um, yeah. idea. Um, I, I, I think that um, the trends, the global trends, are so clear. The world is moving to a world of cities. We'll have 80 percent of the world's population will be in cities by 2050, which is probably a good thing, by the way. Um, the world is increasingly cosmopolitan. Uh, the, the, the mixing of peoples and, and species is inevitable, and I have a whole chapter on migration, which we'll get to later, I'm sure. And the, it's, that's, those tendencies, those dynamics, which are very challenging, by the way, um, e, e, even in the best of circumstances, it, it takes hard work for people from different cultures to, to get along and get along well. Um, even under the best of circumstances, that's challenging, but it's easily manipulated by demagogues, as we've seen. Uh, and people are easily manipulated to do things that are counter to their own interest, as we've seen. So that's a concern we all have to be aware of and we all have to work on. I do think at the same time that the media, and not just Fox News, but also MSNBC and CNN, hype this. And they hype the polarization in ways that are... So, you know, sell, I guess, sell commercials or they think brings, uh, brings viewership. But that's, it's, the voices that yell the loudest or the guns that shoot the furthest shouldn't get all the attention. There are hundreds of thousands of people and organizations all throughout North America that are doing great work and are making a difference. I know this. I'm convinced of this. I've seen it. I've written about it. And they just don't get. They, 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 I've worked with communities that are multicultural, that are multigenerational, that are solving problems in cities, small towns, uh, all over America. And you're just not going to read about them because it's much easier to talk about polarization. Polar, to talk, talking about polarization constantly is laziness, in my view. It's not that simple. Now, having said that, yes, there are people who are much different than you who you're not going to be able to get along with. But if you have the right attitude and you enter into relationships in ways that are uh, open, most people you're going to be able to work with, not all, there are some who are impossible, but many. So what I do in the book 
is I try to discuss my own tribalistic tendencies in ways that seem incredibly silly for, you know, the sports teams I root for and how I dislike people who root for other sports teams. And, I mean, I, I get into it in more depth than that. And I, I conclude by saying I don't really seriously uh, affiliate myself this way. But by thinking about your affiliations as a soft form of tribalism, you can begin to see how this can spill over to a dark side. And that's the role of the educator. Um, When I uh, used to teach regularly at Antioch, I taught a course called Political Economy of Environmental Issues. And one of the things I had the students do was to make a property list and write down everything they owned. And then ask questions about, well, where'd you get that from? How, how, you know, how did you, how did you get that? What, what was its, what's its relationship to the earth? And the reason why I did all of that is because I wanted them to see that they're part of the problem as well, and that by understanding the extent to which they're part of the problem, they're more capable of transcending it. And that's what I think about the tribalism. We are all, I mean, for, I mean, I, I, it, look, I, I was born in New York City um, to Russian Jewish immigrants. I greatly value my Jewish heritage, although I'm a very secular Jew, and I'm more comfortable with people from that background. It's just the way life is. That doesn't mean that I only associate with those people, though. You know, I try to break out of that, but I also recognize where that comfort level comes from. So I think making it personal is, is a way to transcend it. And, um, and it's not a kumbaya. It's not like, oh, everyone's going to get along all the time. Not at all. But it's knowing that difference does matter, and you have to understand how to work with difference. I know I've just covered a lot of ground, but this is yet another subject that I really feel quite passionate about. And I don't feel is being handled very well. Well, I need you to help me with something here, talking about democracy, because uh, I, uh, I, I have not been impressed by the uh, action that the so-called democracies have taken or mostly have failed to take regarding uh, the climate crisis. And I look over at China, essentially a dictatorship, and they've got a billion and a half people, and and it looks like they're out of control, but their leaders uh, are seem to be, I guess you'd say, woke, when it comes to the uh, the environmental degradation, and and they are uh, they are forcing that that country and that economy toward uh, uh, sustainability and and renewable uh, resources, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, sometimes I think that it's too bad that we can't just have. <laughs> somebody in charge just to say okay this is this is what we're going to do you know um yeah it's, it, it i have a lot of course i've had to say about this uh when i was president of unity college we and i write about this in my book the nine elements of a sustainable campus we have the jimmy carter solar, solar panels on the roof of our cafeteria which essentially was a converted uh, chicken farm um, it was a funky little college in, in rural Maine. And we had the Jimmy Carter solar panels because someone from the college went and got them, essentially, when Reagan took them off the White House. And when I was president of Unity from 2006 to 2011, everybody wanted one of those things for a variety of reasons, which I tried to parlay as capital in a way, you know, um, idea capital for the college. At any rate, a 
solar energy um, entrepreneur from China wanted one, and he came to campus to see, look at them and to find out whether we would send him one, which we, in, we did, and then he invited me to China. So this is about 2010 already, where I had never been. And, and we were, my wife and I were absolutely blown away at the amount of solar energy that was, this is 10 years ago, 12 years ago, or 11 years, that the amount of solar uh, installations that we saw there but also, we were blown away by the amount of pollution that we saw. I mean, it's really in yeah. your face all the time. Oh, you yeah. Know? It's, it really is. So, um, I mean, but we went to a solar – this guy had created a solar city uh, three hours by bullet train southeast of Beijing. Um, and it was remarkable uh, what, they were, what they were doing there. We went to a solar fair. So, yes, that was very interesting and exciting to see. But the bigger question that you're asking really is – and I see a question I used to ask in my teaching, what is the extent to which you would endorse coercive policy in support of a crucial environmental uh, regulation? And that's really the question, right? And I think that you have to tread very carefully there. You really do. I mean, there are, there are good arguments for having strong federal governments right now in relationship to the global commons. Um, but we also need to have safeguards against the uh, tendency of strong federal governments to rob individuals of their freedom. The, question, the challenge is, and we've seen this with the masks, by the way, is that most people don't under, really understand that freedom is an extraordinary responsibility. To be free, you have to be part of a civic good. You, freedom yeah. is not just the ability to do whatever the heck you want to do. Well, I don't right. want to wear a mask, right? Well, sorry, but the fact that you're not wearing a mask means that variants of the coronavirus are going to breed in your body, and that threatens everybody. So you can't always do exactly what you want to do, and this is another educational issue. What does it mean to be free, and what kind of responsibility goes along with freedom, and what is the environmental responsibility that goes along with freedom? And if we can answer that question in a, in a, in a uh, adult way, in a profound, thoughtful way, then we could have a good balance between strong government regulation of environmental issues and personal autonomy. But we're not at that point yet. We're just not, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Moving on, human migration. Yeah. You got has, me going now. Has, yeah. <laughs> has been an historical constant, but environmental dislocation is already accelerating it. In nature, migratory species are in decline as the corridors of movement are increasingly threatened. Uh, you point out if human migrants were a country, they'd be the fifth largest in the world. Yeah, uh, I think that the migration issue is the seminal uh, environmental and human and cultural question of um, the next several decades. We've, we're, we're already seeing it. Um, the number of migrants in the world is astonishing, and depending on what you count as a, you know, as a migrant, it's between 1 in 8 and 1 in 12. That is people on the planet. And that's not, that doesn't count internal displacements. That means people who are forced to leave their homes uh, stay within the same country uh, but have no place to go. I mean, an example of an internal displacement in the States would be um, you know, the wildfires in California or hurricanes or yeah. any assortment of yeah. things, right? And, but you, and you talk we about know rival that, cities. 
Yes. Uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned this concept of arrival cities, which I had not really thought of before, arrival cities. And Miami, 43% of everybody in Miami is foreign-born? Yeah, well, at the time when I wrote the book, that was the right percentage. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really something, actually. And, um, and, you know, we don't have as many arrival cities here as other places in the world do. Uh, Toronto is an interesting. Of, of course, a lot of this is, is diminished as a result of COVID. Uh, there's still going to be the same demand. I mean, when and if we get this under control, I think we will get it under control with boosters and, and all of that um, until the next one. But uh, the, the fact is, what I try to point out in the book is that, first of all, this is a crucial question, and you can't solve it with um, demagoguery. Uh, you can't solve it by building walls. Uh, you can't. You don't keep. You can't stop these movements. That's not to say we need a free for all. So that's the first point. The second point is that migration is a phenomenon of the biosphere. Everything's always moving around. The continents are moving. Ancient Gondwana land separated into all these different continents over 250 million years. Species adapt by moving. Birds. I mean, I'm reading a book right now which I highly recommend, called The World on the Wing by Scott Wiedensall, the, the Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds, and to read about the exceptional uh, evolutionary adaptations that allow birds to go such long distances. And as you suggested before, why that whole process is so challenged right now because of habitat fragmentation and other things as well. I mean, the, the, the globe, the humans the, uh, ourselves, we, we've it took us very little time to populate the entire planet. You know, once we left Africa, it's astonishing how quickly we made it to uh, populate the entire planet. So this is just part of the human condition, is to move back and forth. You know, a really funny way, uh, an amusing way to bring this home and, and make it tangible and personal is the next time you travel, whenever that might be, and if you happen to go to the luggage carousel, look at all the pieces of luggage on your carousel, and then think about all the pieces of luggage in that airport, and then think about all the pieces of luggage that are moving on carousels all over the world. And tell me that humans aren't themselves people who are constantly on the move and on the go. So to say you're going to stop this is just foolish to say that you're going to think thoughtfully about how people move and what allows them to go from one place to another and what qualifies them to go from one place to another makes sense. And to say the same thing about species, what species are moving and how do we accommodate their shifts? So there's so much to learn and so much to think about here. Um, and again, my book is a book about learning, and my suggestion is that people who teach environmental learning need to make sure that these concepts are crucial to the curriculum. Let me read, I, I want to read another paragraph from your book, Germaine, to what we were just talking about. These displacements, considered most broadly, weave an intricate convergence demonstrating the interconnectedness, pertinence, and ubiquity of the tides of change. Climate change, a planetary scale pattern, 
results from unmitigated natural resource extraction contributing to rising seas and catastrophic weather events. Public attitudes regarding refugees, migrants, and the dispossessed rekindle historical-scale dilemmas about insiders and outsiders, immigration and racism. Discussions about resilience, recovery, and revitalization raise community-scale questions of economic and social justice. Who will open their communities, share their assets and strengths, and provide succor and welcome to the dispossessed? How these decisions get made is ultimately a question of both conscience and agency. You know, it's funny hearing my my words re- read back to me because uh-huh. it's been a while since I actually wrote the book and I don't go back and read it. And this is going to sound ridiculously egotistical, but or, or maybe not. Um, I, sometimes I can't believe I actually got my act together enough to be coherent enough to write that. <laughs> you it know what I mean? Sounds good, doesn't it? Right, yeah. yeah. It's like, well, how, how, do I ever, how do I ever get so focused? Um, yeah. I don't know. And let but, me let me also uh, mention let me also mention here, uh, uh, Mitch. I want I want to also mention uh, about how how generous you are in your writing, because you talk a lot about other authors and books in a personal fashion. Not you don't just use cold bookmarks. Uh, and 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 you 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 have made me curious about several other books just within your book. Well, good. Thank you. Uh, you, you know, there's a, and there's in fact there's an annotated bibliography. For every chapter, I, I have a, a short essay that su- that suggests things for people to read because I've learned from all those books. Those 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 books have been my teachers, and and I want I want to pay homage to those teachers, and um, I want to share my look. The, what I hope comes across in my book is my enthusiasm for learning, and my enthusiasm for people, and my enthusiasm for for observing nature. And I well, want to share that enthusiasm. And if it's another book that, that helps people get there, but I also want to share that enthusiasm by offering people lots of things that they can do on their own to think about this in more depth. So there are all kinds of activities and meditations and ways of engaging with communities that are recommended in the book. In every chapter, there's some of these things as well. And, you know, again, that's the teacher in me that wants to see, you know, people thrive with the possibilities that are in inherent in the book. But getting back to what you read just now, um, there's, um, you can learn a lot about any community by, uh, by looking at uh, how they deal with newcomers, um, whether they try to isolate themselves, whether they welcome them. And if they do welcome them, how do they do it? Um, there are communities all over uh, in North America that are very welcoming. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Newcomers by Helen Thorpe, which I uh, uh, reflect on in my own, about a high school in Denver that uh, works with refugee children and the challenges that that encompass that. So I I think there are many organizations that do this work, and they do this work incredibly well. And, And once again, the loud voices who yell no are the ones who you often hear. But there are more people who understand the necessity of welcoming newcomers and what that means. And any study that you look at suggests, I mean, any study suggests that uh, immigration and the people who arrive at a new place allow that place to thrive. So, you know, we have the data. We know what works. 
we know that cosmopolitan communities are thriving communities, um, and we have to act on that knowledge. Uh, two two uh, book titles that, that that come to mind that you got me interested in, and, and then we're going to go uh, to the next step. But if mayors ruled the world and cities yeah. think like planets. Yeah, those, those, yeah, those ben- sound like... Benjamin Barber, who's a, a, a wonderful political theorist who's deceased, um, wrote a book that influenced me enormously that I used in my teaching back in the 80s called Strong Democracy. And it's a it's really a guide to a little heavy-handed in places theoretically, but but a very practical book at the same time to what he calls strong democracy. And uh, it's worth saying something about this for a moment. Uh, in weak democracy, a few people make all of the decisions all the time. That's representative democracy. That's what we have right now. Essentially, a few people make all the decisions all the time. You vote for them, and you know, I, I won't get into all of the the issues right now with. Uh, what, even, even we're not even representative right now because of um, the way the Senate is constructed and everything else. But yeah. in weak, democ- weak democracy is representative democracy. In strong dem- democracy, everyone makes some of the decisions some of the time. So there's more responsibility, and the responsibility is delegated in a different kind of way. And that doesn't mean you don't have hierarchy and you don't have, uh, uh, you don't have issues of authority and that you don't have accountability. You do. But you engage more people. So Barbara wrote a book, oh gosh, maybe six or seven years ago already, called If If Mayors Ruled the World. And his thesis essentially is this. He says that cities now, if you look at cities around the world, they actually, for the most part, get things done. Uh, And the reason why they get things done is because they don't have to deal with some of the national politics that constantly frays at our nerves. Uh, either you either you get the snow removed or you don't. You know, either the water system works or it doesn't. So, uh, cities actually are the municip- the principalities that have the most potential for uh, allowing us to address climate and a range of other issues. So, there's great power in the mayors. There's great power in the cities for all those reasons and many more. And so that's the whole point of that book. And I find that very encouraging because, because again, as I said, by 2050, 80% of the world's population will be living in cities. So we have to pay a lot of attention not only on the politics of cities and how cities make decisions for their, um, for their populace, but also on what it takes to create an urban ecology. Uh, urban ecology, incidentally, is one of the fastest growing fields in environmental studies. And that is that how we look at nature in the city matters enormously. And there are a whole range of both evolutionary and ecological and cultural dynamics that we need to consider when we think about urban ecology. And there are some wonderful urban ecology books that are accessible, that are filled with examples of fantastic projects that are taking place all over the world. I guess the point is, and I'll, I'll, you know, the point is that there are so many great projects happening and more people need to know about them related to this uh i have some notes here and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say the the four points that i have and let you take it from there sense of place cosmopolitan bioregionalism global tribe eco cosmopolitans (laughs) <laughs> well, um, you know, some of those are out of uh, some of those are in context, and 
may not be as helpful. But what I'll do is I'll, what I'll try to do is I'll develop the thought sequence, the strategic thought yeah. sequence that yeah. generates those terms. I come from an educational tradition that really focuses on sense of place. The idea of sense of place is that if you know your own place really well, you have a sense of belonging and a sense of community and a sense of neighborhood. And knowing your place is a function not just of who your neighbors are, but uh, from a, your human neighbors, but also your, your species neighbors, your ecological neighbors. It's knowing as much as you can about that place. Most indigenous cultures in the history of life on Earth would not survive without a, a, a highly sophisticated sense of place. But, you know, in these times, in the Anthropocene, it's, it's harder, it's more challenging to do that. So from an educational point of view, I've always emphasized sense of place. In my teaching, I emphasize, and there are a lot of ways you can get at that. And people are always interested in talking about their, their background and their roots and their origins and their sense of place. Out of sense of place came, uh, back in the, boy, in the 70s and 80s, a concept called bioregionalism. The idea of bioregionalism is that our current political jurisdictions are really an artifice of colonialism um, and land ownership. They are not based on uh, the physiography or ge geography. So why would the Connecticut River separate Vermont and New Hampshire or the Mississippi River separate, you know, uh, Iowa and what's on the east of Iowa, Illinois? Illinois, right? yeah. Yeah, so why would that be? In, in fact, the river is the watershed that links the land. So the idea of bioregionalism is that you have principalities that are based on ecological criteria, not politics of land ownership or colonization. And that's a very important concept. And what I try to do in this book is I revitalize as a section called Why Place Still Matters and Why Bioregionalism Still Matters. And it's, these are not archaic. These are very relevant for cities because in cities you have ecological neighborhoods that are highly dynamic, um, require highly dynamic senses of place, um, and an understanding of all the different species that live on your block, whether they're human or non-human. So that's what that all means. And then the idea of cosmopolitan bioregionalism, which is actually the title of an essay I wrote, oh, gosh, maybe in the uh, in late 90s. And then I have a chapter in this book called Cosmopolitan Bioregionalism. The idea is that you, bioregionalism is not just a retreat to um, what, you, what you know best, or it, it, it's not a closed border. It's what you, it, as, as you affirm your sense of place, you have to understand the relationship between places. And that's where the idea of newcomers comes in. So how do you establish a sense of belonging to place, whether you're there for your whole life or just for a few hours? And whenever I travel, I haven't traveled lately because of COVID, but whenever I travel, first thing I do is try to understand the place where I've gone, gone to. What's this place like? Who lives here? Um, how do I get, enter into it? How do I learn from it? Um, what are the resources here that I, I need to um, learn about? So I, I want to understand this place so I can understand my home place better. And when I move to a place, because, you know, I've not moved a lot in my life. Most Americans move quite frequently. So what does it mean to move to a place? How do you establish your roots there in a world that's constantly shifting? So all of these questions matter to me. And I, I deal with them in every single book I've written, but in a different way.
I hope that so gets what are added. Ego causing you know, again, it was the it was the strategic thought sequence that I wanted to uh, convey. So, what is an eco cosmopolitan? Well, an eco cosmopolitan would be somebody who understands the importance of diverse cultures and diverse uh, habitats and species, and sees the world as an ecological whole. They they have a great affiliation with their home place, but they also see the world as an ecological whole. You know, one of the things, I just read this, um, I mean, it's something I thought about for a long time, but I was just reading A World on the Wing, which I referred to previously. And Scott Wiedensall talks about, you know, uh, until the last 20 years, we knew virtually nothing about bird migration. But what we're learning now, uh, because of all kinds of new sophisticated technologies, is that the, the specificities of places that birds go to are so incredibly different, diverse, and vast. Um, it, it's, it's really we can learn a lot by studying where birds go and where they migrate to, and how they make their homes when they're in a place temporarily. We can, there's a lot for humans to learn by studying birds in that regard. In fact, you can say that about any species. Humans, and I, you know, I refer to this in the book as well. There's a whole chapter on networks and connectivity. Humans can learn a great deal about connectivity by studying mycelium, which are the, you know, the, the, yeah. fungal, uh, the fungal connective tissue of forests, uh -huh. of the planet. Paul Stamets, the great mushroom visionary, describes uh, the mycelium as the, the, the original Internet. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know, here's another thing to, to think about. Uh, Think about the number of mycelial scientists there are on the planet, or for that matter, soil scientists. And then think about the number of lawyers and bankers. You can't even scale it. The percentages are so small. The ratio is so small. Yet what's yeah. more important, right? Yeah. I mean, what's yeah. more important? So yeah. that's, that's the redirection that we need. Well, back to environmental learning. You say that it is a balance between structure and improvisation. Yeah. What well, some of the uh, great, I really appreciate um, the kinds of questions that you're asking me, Van, and your um, ability to allow me to, to riff off them, if, which I guess is the right metaphor for this next answer. <laughs> um, my, the, the great, the passions of my life, you know, aside from family members and that sort of thing, have been uh, sports and play. You know, I'm, I'm still a crazy New York Knicks and New York Mets fan. And I, I played basketball until well into my 60s. And I'm paying for it now. Um, and, and, uh, and music and observing nature. And in my career, leadership. And I found and that like what's Henry made David. me successful. Did uh, you know that you're a lot like... Uh, did you, you, you mentioned Thoreau in your book. Do you... Do you uh, did you realize that you have some Thoreau uh, uh, tendencies? Well, well actually, I, I'd love to. I'd love to. to that I, I don't even see myself in the same class or category. But I'll, I'd love to say a few things about Thoreau after this riff. Okay. The the best, my most successful moments as a basketball player, and I was a very average player, um, and as a musician. And as an observer of nature and as a leader, have come in times of what I describe as improvisational excellence, 
when I was really in the flow of the moment and I was working collaboratively with others. Those have been the great kind of learning moments of my life. So what I try to do in the book is explain that, but also suggest that when we talk about adaptation, because we're well beyond mitigation right now, as you well know, in thinking about global environmental change, we have to be thinking about, I mean, mitigation, sure, but we have to be thinking about adaptation. We need an improvisational approach because the circumstances change so quickly. So unless you understand how to do improvisation and how to do improvisation well, you're not going to be able to adapt to the changing circumstances of global environmental change. To do that well is a balance between structure and process. Structure means that there are, there's a structure to the biosphere. There are global biogeochemical cycles. There are uh, principles of ecology. Those are things that you need to know. But there's so much variation within those structures that if you rely exclusively on your knowledge of the structure, not the only way, similar if you're improvising in music, in your jazz, for example, there are structures, there are scales, there are chord relationships. You need to know those. You need to study those. But then you move off those as, as, uh, as demanded by the circumstance. So I make the case that improvisational learning is, is crucial. Thoreau is a very interesting, uh, there's a wonderful biography of Thoreau by uh, Laura Walls uh, that I, I actually read way back in March at the beginning of the pandemic because, um, you know, I thought it was really appropriate since we were going to be sequestered in the woods for a long period of time. And, you know, Thoreau spent a lot of time very close to where I live. Um, so the habitat's familiar and it was very interesting to read about him. Um, but, yes, Thoreau, Thoreau's learning, he was something of an autodidact when it came to nature. I mean, there was no other choice at that point in time. Uh, Thoreau was a master of improvisational learning uh, in terms of the natural world. Uh, absolutely. I might also add, by the way, that Thoreau and his family were uh, a a fervid abolitionists. Um, and uh, even way back then, there was a correspondence between these kinds of issues. It doesn't just go back to the 60s. Um, but there's a great deal to be learned from Thoreau about what I call the deliberate, the idea of the deliberate pause, the, the idea of taking time to truly be mindful in, in the natural world really comes, well, you know, there are many traditions that, Taoism, native traditions, many traditions that, for which that's relevant, but Thoreau is one of the great Western ex exponents and explorers of the deliberate pause. You also mentioned present moment awareness is about the same thing. The, one of the one of the the things that that you got into for a, a little bit in the book, which I found fascinating, was a tangled bank. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where I refer to that. Actually, um, three, maybe it's three billion the the... years of. Yeah, it's toward the end. Uh, three billion years of organic evolution encoded into us. And reconnecting children to nature uh, was, was was part of that. Well, you know, tangled bank is a metaphor that comes from Darwin, um, and it yeah. was Darwin's, yeah. you know, vision of um, of really ex expanding and uh, exploding, if you will, uh, how we think about the natural world. I mean, the magnitude of Darwin and others, Wallace, and and a whole generation of of nineteenth century Western scientists. Um, 
who were discovering things that you know many other cultures had already known, but they were doing it in a way that required uh, a certain method, a scientific method. Um, he really the richness, the richness, the plenitude, the yes. magnificence, the wonder, yes. the the mystery, the proliferation. Um, the unknowingness yes. of it all, the humility. Yeah. Perceptual reciprocity. Much of that is stewardship. <laughs> you know, for those who are listening, I want to let you all know that I, use, I come up with these words, and, the, and the, the book is not filled with terminology. Um, it, it, these are words that I explain in much depth, and yeah. for the most part, I kind of I kind of make up, and they're always preceded with a story of some kind or something that's accessible, and we move from personal story and narrative to deeper theoretical constructs. So in many respects, it's like the whole improvisational process. You well, start with a story, or you start with a structure, and then you move on let, into let me, the deeper stuff. Yeah. Let, let me let me read uh, one more paragraph uh, from your book okay. right, that 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 goes along with this perceptual reciprocity, which, which has a lot to do with, with stewardship. Uh, uh, for decades, this has been the overwhelming challenge of environmental learning, to expand awareness of the natural world, form a deeper communion, and in so doing, build respect, gratitude, and appreciation for the conditions of our human existence on a magnificent planet. Here's the rub. Amid all the distractions traps and frailties of the human experience, that level of awareness and gratitude is exceptionally difficult to achieve. But without it, environmental learning lacks soul and passion, and it will never be more than an intellectual accomplishment. What kind of educational processes allow us to achieve a balance between intellectual growth and a penetrating gratitude for the biosphere where we dwell. What kind of visceral experiences promote that balance? Well, it's a, it's a great question, a good thing to end on as well. Uh, I, I, so much of um, education and well, learning is a process of opening your mind. And, and most of us spend countless mind moments dwelling on um, really honestly trivial things that seem really important at the time. And I'm just as guilty of this as the next person. Um, but the great moments of learning happen when, you, when your mind is open. And I really believe that um, exploring the natural world is one of many ways, but it's the way that I'm interested in for this book, of opening, opening your mind. And what I suggest is that it's hard to do, you, because our minds are so busy. At best, you get glimpses of this, of this magnitude, um, and then the mind shuts it down. So the task for the, edu the educator is to set up experiences that allow for these glimpses to, um, to amplify. And, you know... Um, the great Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel said, and I write about this in a previous book, a minimum of perception is a maximum of enigma. And he also writes, indifference to the sublime wonder of living 
is the root cause of sin. And what he's suggesting is that it's a great um, privilege to have human awareness, to have the senses we have, as limited as they might be. They're extraordinary. And we squander them countless times in our daily life. And again, I'm as guilty as the next person. You know? So you want to be around people and you want to be in situations that allow you to explore and experience that that great privilege of human awareness. And one of the ways to do it is by closely observing other species. The challenge of the Anthropocene is that it surrounds us with the artifacts of humanity. But the best way to understand what it means to be human is by placing yourself in the context of landscape and habitat and other species. That's the last chance we have, really, to understand what it means to be a human being, is to see ourselves in that bigger uh, perspective. Mitch, this has been great. Thanks so much for sharing all those decades of environmental work and for this book that helps us move forward toward saving the earth. I appreciate your great questions and your close read and um, and your uh, and your great curiosity, Van. I, I appreciate the, having the time to spend with you. I hope we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. We'll connect my email. See you. So, if you want to increase your environmental learning, you need to actually touch nature. You need to break the spell of whatever screen you're on at the moment and take stock of the day, the real day, be it cloudy or sunny. You need to deliberately pause from time to time and look around at where you are and why you are there at the moment. It's about perception and paying attention. It's about noticing. Use your animal senses. This book was just published last November. It's by MIT Press. Mitchell Tomashow wrote it. It's called To Know the World, and it can be found wherever books are sold. This has been another edition of the author interviews that I am calling Suicide Earth. I call it that because we're not just killing us.